Isn't that cool? Let me ask you a question. Did you enjoy the worship this weekend? Would you let those? I told Laura, during this whole pandemic, we've been at home listening to some of these new songs. I'm like, I cannot wait till we get together and we can sing them together. And I gotta be honest with you. If I had to rate this week, it would be like one of the top three worst weeks of my life. I'll just be honest with you. But when we were singing, he turns graves into gardens. He's the only one who can. Wow. I thought the Holy Spirit was going to show up and we were going to jerk our mask off and we were just going to start singing. Maybe next week. But anyway, anyway, it was incredible to hear you guys worship. Let me update you what's going on with our virtual learning centers. Uh, we told you we had some roadblocks, and honestly, uh, about 30 minutes before the service, I was given some announcements, and we had two options. One, uh, put pressure and pray that the governor would make an executive order, and we know that man loves to make some executive orders, but we don't know which way they're going to go, so that was one option. That was kind of scary. The other one was to ask the Department of Health and Human Services to modify some things so that we could operate. And uh, that doesn't seem like a great approach. Right before I walked up here, this is what I was told. The governor basically said, and the Department of Health and Human Services says, we're gonna put it back in the laps of the principals. They can choose to partner with who they want to partner with. I told you uh, that the hearts of kings are like rivers of water and God just directs them wherever he wants. So this is what we need you to do. We need you to contact the principals where your kids go to school and let them know that Hope Community Church is here to help them through this time. They will reach out to us. If you contact us and let us know you reached out to the principal, we will then follow it up and contact them. We will get that relationship going. And I believe that this is gonna become a reality. Keep praying. God is doing some amazing things. By the way, let me just say something. A lot of people don't know this. This is useless trivia, but let me just tell you anyway. A lot of people, when I say Sunday school, that's something you grow up, you go to church and you hear Bible stories, right? You remember the Bible stories? Sunday school actually began in the 18th century in England. So that's in the 1700s. Do you know why? It's because in those days, children worked full-time jobs. And many families didn't have the money, even if their kids didn't work, to send their kids to school to get an education. So the church stepped up. And the idea of Sunday school came when churches decided that they were going to open their doors on Sunday morning before the worship services, invite the kids in who had to work all week and teach them how to write, how to read, and how to do math and the other skills that are so important. That's where Sunday school came from. And so when you think about it, we're going full circle. We're once again engaging with our community to be a part of the solution. And I just am so excited. Thank you so much for all you've done. Give yourself a hand, our staff a hand. They've been working ridiculously hard. And this is going to become a reality. Well, we're in the second week of our series, and uh, we're calling this series Origin Story. And I told you last week that this is something we began a couple of years ago where we block out five weeks, usually during the summer. And uh, we started in Genesis, and we take five books of the Bible. And I love this, uh, this part that we're going through called Game of Thrones. You really see it last week in Kings, especially this week in 2 Kings, that's the book that we're dealing with this week. Now, this is what's interesting about 2 Kings. Uh, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, this is the book that tested you. I'm telling you, if you fizzled out somewhere, I, it probably wasn't Leviticus. So, see, Leviticus has some weird enough stuff in it. It's halfway interesting, right? 
But this idea of 2 Kings, I'm telling you, first of all, it's difficult to understand. Second, it is tough to teach. Only an idiot, I'm telling you, only an idiot would decide that they were gonna teach the whole book of 2 Kings in 30 minutes, okay? But I'm the guy, okay? I'm the idiot, I'm highly qualified to do this. So it's difficult to understand. It's really, really hard to teach. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, there are parts of it, it's, it's as boring as watching paint dry. And you know that if you've actually tried to read through 2 Kings, but this is what's interesting. The Bible is the inspired word of God. If it's in this book, this 66 books, it's there because God ordained it to be there. So that means that the book of 2 Kings makes up the canon of scripture, those 66 books for a reason. And we have to understand the reason. So I'm gonna give you the reason. I'm gonna give you the principle behind 2 Kings, and then I'm gonna show you a couple of verses uh, to support this principle. And then I think as we go through it, it will help you understand the book. Here's the principle. Persistent sin may be forgiven, but often the consequences can't be erased. Let me say that again. This is the overall principle. Persistent sin may be forgiven, but often the consequences can't be erased. In other words, spiritually, our sins may be forgiven, but we may bear the consequences of those sins our whole lives. I'll give you an example. Let's say you drug, struggle with let's say drug addiction. And let's say that in that process you become a Christian and you experience the joy of having all of your sins forgiven. That is no guarantee that you are going to avoid the consequences that the abuse of the drugs may have on his or her body. And there are a lot of examples I could give you. That's true in a lot of areas of life. And we don't like to hear stuff like that, but I gotta make, that is the principle behind 2 Kings. And if you don't understand that principle, you won't understand what's going on in this book. In fact, let me show you a couple of verses that talk about this principle. Uh, the first one is in Job chapter four, verse eight. Job writes, I have observed those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, if you make bad choices, there are going to be consequences. For example, if you murder someone, you may be in jail awaiting your trial. Someone may come by yourself, share the gospel. You may become a Christian. All of your sins will be forgiven, but guess what? You're probably still gonna spend the rest of your life in prison. It's because it's consequences. Or you may have an affair and you may feel guilty about it and you may confess it, but that doesn't mean that your marriage is not going to implode. There are consequences. And again, we love to focus on the grace of God. And trust me, we need to focus on the grace of God. I guarantee you, none of you need to call on the grace of God in your life as much as I need to call on the grace of God in my life. And that's a good thing. But see, this is a principle we just can't ignore. Here's another verse, Galatians chapter six, verse seven. Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap Destruction. Now, I put that verse in there because I know what a lot of you are thinking. Well, Mike, you're talking out of 2 Kings. That's the law. Those are those Old Testament principles. We're no longer under the law. We're now under grace. Those things don't apply, right? But Galatians 6 reminds us that this is under the new covenant. This is under grace. It reminds us that this principle still applies. Look what it says. A man reaps what he sows. Here's another in Colossians chapter 3, verse 25. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Now, let me just say this. I realize, and you're gonna see it in the book of 2 Kings, there are times when God steps in and he overrules this principle with his grace and that certainly is his choice. But I will tell you this, after 40 years of ministry and dealing with people and dealing with issues, more than often, that's not the case. 
Forgiven sins often still produce horrible ramifications. Consequences are consequences. And let me just say, this principle comes across loud and clear in the book of 2 Kings. I mean, as we work our way through this book over the next few minutes, you're gonna see tragedy, you're gonna see heartache, you're gonna see sorrow, you're gonna see compromise, you're gonna see death written across these 25 chapters. And as a result, we are going to see the decline and the destruction of the great nation of Israel. That's Second Kings. In fact, let me just show you the first two verses that kind of give you a feel for what we're in for when we get into this book. Second Kings chapter one, verse one says, after Ahab's death, you may remember we talked about King Ahab last week. He was married to Jezebel. Well, he dies after his death. Moab rebelled against Israel, verse two. Now Ahaziah, he's the new king. He had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and, ended, and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult, not God, go and consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Well, just so you know, that's the God of the occult. That's the God that's involved with satanic and demonic worship. Go and consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. And so before you even finish the first two verses of the book, we already have references to, to demonic and to satanic activity. And again, that's just a preview of what you're gonna see throughout the rest of the book. And it continues for 350 years. This kind of behavior, this kind of disobedience, this kind of lawlessness, it continues for 350 years. You wanna talk about the grace of God in the Old Testament, the mercy of God in the Old Testament, the patience and the love of God in the Old Testament. It continues for 350 years until God finally says, I can't take it anymore. That's enough. And the nation of Israel falls under the hand of God's judgment. And so I understand 2 Kings, this book, traces the events of the civil war in Israel. We talked about that last week, which began in 930 BC through the year of 586 BC when the southern kingdom finally falls to Babylon. It's a period of about 350 years. Now let me just show you a couple of events in the, in the book that you may find interesting. Uh, if you were paying attention last week, you may remember that I mentioned that God sent his prophet, his name was Elijah, basically to be a thorn in King Ahab's flesh. You remember that. And as a result, Elijah stood before Ahab and he faithfully preached the truth of God's word for years. He was God's word. He was God's voice to Ahab. But then you get to 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, and it says, as they. So who is they? Who's that referred to? Well, it refers to Elijah, and it also refers to a guy named, who's also a prophet, Elisha. Now, why God made their names so similar and put them together in the same story, I don't know, okay? But you've got Elijah and you've got Elisha. Elisha is like a PIT, okay? He is like a prophet in training. He is Elijah's understudy. So they were walking along and talking together. Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Do you remember the story from Sunday school? What this means is that Elijah didn't die. God took Elijah straight to heaven without Elijah having to die. Now, just a little side note. There's only two people in the Bible who didn't die, who went straight to heaven. One was Elijah. Do you remember the second one? Enoch. It said that Enoch walked with God in the book of Genesis and he was not. In other words, he went out for a walk one day and God just took him home. So we have two people who didn't die. Now, 
just a side note, in the book of Revelation, when we get to the end times, it talks about there are gonna be two prophets who come to this earth and they're gonna be slain in the streets and the whole world's gonna see it. You can thank 24 seven uh, news for that, okay? Everyone will see it. Many people think that it will be Enoch and Elijah, why? Because it tells us in Hebrews that it's appointed once a man to die and then the judgment. These guys never died. So it makes sense that they're gonna come back and die during the book of Revelation. That's just a side note. There will be no test. Okay, then it goes on and says, verse 12. Elisha saw this, so he sees Elijah go up in the sky and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, and Elisha saw him no more. And then it goes on to talk about how the mantle falls off of Elijah and Elisha catches his mantle. It would be like his robe, his cape. And it's kind of like the passing of the baton. And God tells Elisha, this younger prophet, that all of the blessings that Elijah experienced, that he is going to experience twofold. In other words, he is going to be blessed twice as much as Elijah. And so Elisha comes on the scene and he just picks up where Elijah takes off. By the way, there's a really cool story you might want to read to your kids, okay? It's in 2 Kings chapter 2. Right after Elijah leaves, Elisha is left, and he's walking down the road one day, and there's a bunch of snot-nosed kids that are making fun of him. You can read this. It's right there in 2 Kings chapter 2, and they're calling him Baldy. Baldy, Baldy, Baldy. And Elijah calls down a curse from God, and two bears come out and maul 42 kids. That's good stuff. I see, that's the kind of guy you want to be, though, a Wake County school bus driver right there, right? But anyway, anyway, it's right there in Kings chapter two. That's just a side note. But my point is simply this. That had no point, but my point is simply this. Elijah leaves, Elisha comes on the scene, and I tell you that because as you read through 2 Kings, you will discover that God jeeps, he just keeps placing these godly prophets in front of these evil kings. In fact, if you go to our website, if you go to the app, uh, I've done some work where I have put together all the kings of the northern kingdom, all the kings of the southern kingdom, and then I put all the prophets who serve those kings. See, we don't, we don't read the Old Testament chronologically, right? But all of these old prophets that you read about through the rest of the Old Testament, they had a particular ministry with those kings, and you can download that, you can put it in your Bible, and it may be helpful for you. But I'm telling you, the prophets are an interesting study. In fact, just last week, someone asked me, how did you get to be a major prophet, not a minor prophet? Well, it's very, very technical. You were considered a major prophet if you had a long book, okay? So Isaiah wrote a long book. He's a major prophet. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they are major prophets. You get to guys like Amos and Joel, Nahum, Obadiah. They wrote books that are just four or five, maybe six chapters. So they're minor prophets. It's not like they were minor and they weren't good enough to play in the majors. That's all it is. But they're an interesting study. For example, as you read through 2 Kings, it, it's, it's almost as if these prophets come out of nowhere. They're like a meteor in the sky. You see them and then they're gone. And I say that because when you read about the kings, you're given a lot of detail. You're told how old they were when they began their reign, how long they reigned, who their mom was, who their dad was, how they died. But the prophets, they just kind of show up, uh, they give their message, they stand firm. By the way, they, they had no concern about being politically correct, right? And then they were out of there. Sometimes you have no idea where they came from. You don't get any information about how they died. They just show up, do their thing, and then God moves them on. Now, when you get to 2 Kings 17, I wanna just give you a glimpse of what the lifestyle of the great nation of Israel had become. 
what it was like. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 13, it says, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all of his prophets and seers. Now remember, there was no written scripture. So these prophets spoke for God, okay? So God warned the Israel and Judah through the prophets, the seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. For they would, but they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors. Now that's, that's an interesting phrase. They were as stiff-necked as their ancestors. Remember last week we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 8 that the sins of the father or the sins of the mother or the sins of any parent can be passed down to the child to the third or fourth generation unless someone breaks that cycle. And so what they're saying is nobody's breaking the cycle. They're still carrying on the sins of their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. And then you see in verse 17 of 2 Kings 17, they sacrificed their sons and daughter in the fire. Now you may have read that in the Old Testament, you have no idea what it is. That's actually a reference to the worshiping the God of Molech, who was a Hittite God. And the way you worship Molech, one of the ways is you sacrificed your children to this God. And the way you sacrificed your children is you had your children walk into a burning inferno. The Israelites had reached that level of depravity. It goes on to say they practiced divination, that's witchcraft. They sought omens and they sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Let me tell you how he removed them. He had the king of Assyria in 722 BC sweep in and destroy them. All 10 of the tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel wiped off the face of the earth. There is no evidence that you can find anymore that they even existence. There's a reference to them every once in a while in the Bible, but God wiped them off the face of the earth. And what intrigues me was that little phrase, as their ancestors. It's just a reminder, likes beget likes, evil begets evil. And you're gonna see that principle all the way through 2 Kings. Now this is what's refreshing. Sometimes God breaks the cycle. Aren't you glad he breaks the cycle? Let me show you an example. 2 Kings chapter 16, verse one. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Now that verse is probably not gonna change your life, okay? It's probably not even gonna be your life verse, so let's keep reading, okay? Chapter 16, verse two. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem, so he's in the south, okay? He's in the nation of Judah. He reigned in Judah 16 years. Now notice this. Unlike David, his father, or you could put ancestor there, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the way, all the kings in the north that just got wiped out by Assyria, every one of them said they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Not a one of them did good. So here we have another one that did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. So he was engaged in worshiping this Moloch God too. Engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In other words, the, the, these nations that have all these, all these false gods that inhabited the promised land, God had cleared them out, but now they've let them back in through the intermarrying. We saw that last week. Now let me just show you how evil Ahaz was. Just stick with me, there, there's a point to this. 2 Kings 16 verse seven. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I am your servant and vassal. That's, that's his way of saying, hey, I want to work with you. 
I want to be your ally. I'll make it worth it to you. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel. So that would, that would be the north, who are attacking me. And Ahaz, look at this, he took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. So Ahaz rips off the gold, he rips off the silver out of God's temple, and he uses it as a bribe to get the king of Assyria to partner with him as an ally against Aram and against Israel. Now, I just point that out because that's the kind of man, that's the kind of father that Ahaz was. He was, he was rotten, okay? He was bad to the bone. I mean, he, he is a, he's a bad dude, right? 2 Kings 16, verse 20. Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. And Hezekiah, when he took the throne, he was 25 years old. That means that Hezekiah, for 25 years, has been under the influence of an evil, wicked, demon-worshipping father. But what was Hezekiah like? 2 Kings 18, verse 3. He did what was right. Now that's refreshing, because as you read through the book of 2 Kings, you'll only see that a handful of times. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father or his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. These are just elements of idol worship that his dad had put in place. So it turns out that Hezekiah is a remarkable young man, which goes back to the principle we talked about last week, and you do not have to be a product of your environment. You can break this cycle. And so it turns out that Hezekiah is incredible. He cleanses out the temple, he puts it back in order, he gets rid of all the false idols, uh, he restores worship to the nation, and once again, for the first time in a long time, the people of Israel are hearing about the presence of God. This is all because of Hezekiah. But not only that, Hezekiah was a man of great faith. There's a really, real cool story in 2 Kings chapter 19. Uh, King Sennacherib of, of Assyria, Assyria were bad dudes in those days, okay? They are holding Jerusalem hostage. And he did it by cutting off the water supply to the city by seizing the well that was outside the city. He seized the well so the water couldn't flow from the well outside the city, under the walls, into the city of Jerusalem. And then Sennacherib, after he sees the well, everybody within the city walls, I mean, they're dying of thirst. And he sits out by the well every day and he taunts them, like, you ain't got no water. I think he's from Fuquay probably, but you ain't got no water. He's just taunting them constantly. Well, finally, Hezekiah realizes, we're doomed. We're gonna die. The animals are already dying of thirst. We're gonna die of thirst because he's cut off our water supply. And so what does he do? He prays in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. And he says, now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. This is referring to Sennacherib. So that all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. And God hears his prayer and he's like, wow, you know. I like the way this young man thinks. So he's like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do, Hezekiah. Just sit back and watch. Watch what I can do. I'm gonna fight this battle for you. And it says in verse 35 of chapter 19, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. They have no idea how they died. 185 dead soldiers, and it freaks out Sennacherib the king, and he tucks his tail between his legs, and he runs home, and you never hear of him again. 
And at this point in Hezekiah's reign, life is good. I'll tell you, his approval chart ratings are off the chart. But then out of the blue, out of the blue, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Now, you can just imagine what it would be like going to the doctor and the doctor saying, listen, I hate to tell you, but you need to get your affairs in order. That's what the prophet Isaiah is telling Hezekiah. And of course, he's devastated. And he does the exact same thing that we would do if we found ourselves in that situation. He, he prays, he pleads, he bargains, he cries, he weeps. And God is like, well, good gracious, Hezekiah. I mean, if you're going to be a big ball baby about it, you know what? I'll give you 15 more years. In fact, Isaiah tells about it in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 4. He says, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your, seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go up. Literally, the Hebrew word means back up. The 10 steps, it is down. It has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. By the way, the stairway was like a sundial. People could look at the stairs on the temple, see where the shadows were, and they knew what time of day it was. So he's going to back it up. So notice what it says. The sunlight went back 10 steps. It had gone down. And if you check it out, it means that the sun backed up for about an hour. So this is what God says. Hezekiah, not only am I going to promise you 15 years, I'm going to back the sun up 10 steps on the temple. And you're going to see my commitment. You're going to see my promise to you of this extra 15 years. You're going to see it with your own eyes. And when Hezekiah realizes that he has this reprieve, guess what he does? He hits the ground running. And there are several things that he accomplishes in this 15-year period of reprieve. For example, tucked away in the book of Psalms is a little cluster of Psalms, and they're known as the Ascent Psalms. You can read them. They start in Psalm 120, and they go to Psalm 134. Four of them are credited to David. One of them are credited to Solomon. The other 10 are credited, were written by Hezekiah. Now, why is that important? Well, 10, that's the number of steps that the sun backed up. 15, altogether, the number of years that God added to Hezekiah's life. I mean, that is crazy stuff, right? But that's not all. Do you remember the well that Sennacherib choked off from outside the city so that the city was, uh, that they couldn't drink and, and they were dying of thirst? Hezekiah's like, that will never happen again on my watch. And so you read in 2 Chronicles. By the way, I told you last week that we're going to study 1 and 2 Kings and we're going to skip 1 and 2 Chronicles because they're kind of synonymous books. They, they, they tell the same events. But there are times in 2 Chronicles that it adds some, fills in some gaps for us in 2 Kings. This is one of those times. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 30. It was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down the west side of the city of David. In other words, Hezekiah said, this is not going to happen again. So he went out to the source of the well where the water where the spring was and he dug a tunnel under the wall into the city so that the water would flow instead of going to the well directly into the city and it removed the threat that Jerusalem could ever be held siege again by somebody taking over the well by the way the tunnel I have some pictures of us climbing through it the tunnel is carved out of solid rock it's 1700 feet long 
And this is what's interesting. Hezekiah wanted to get it done as quickly as possible. So he used two teams. One started at the spring. One started inside the city where they wanted the water source to flow to. And they began to dig underground 1,700 feet through solid rock. And they came together and they say they could hear each other on the other side of the wall. Now think about this. Without any sonar, without any technical equipment, they did this. And when they got together, one side was less than a quarter inch lower than the other. They lined up absolutely perfectly. Go to Israel with me sometime. You can walk right through there, right? And then it says this in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 21. After his 15 years were up, Hezekiah rested with his ancestors. So he came from a horrible father, but he turned out great. Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old. Any of you have a 12-year-old? Can you imagine? And nobody could tell him to take a shower. You know, he's the king, right? Right? 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. So Hezekiah, Manasseh's dad, think about this. He reigned for 29 years. That means that for all 12 years of Manasseh's life, he has lived under the positive influence of a godly dad. So what was Manasseh like? 2 Kings 21, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. By the way, it was the longest reign of any king in the south. His mother's name was Hard Word, okay? Verse 2. <laughs> I was a PE major, okay? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Look at this. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal, made the Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to the starry host. That's a reference to demons. He worshiped them. The Lord said through his servants, the prophet, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed all of these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. So understand, Manasseh is the exact opposite of his father. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that when it comes to parenting, there are no guarantees. I mean, think about it. Hezekiah had a horrible father, and he turned out great. Manasseh had a great father, and he turned out horribly. My point is simply this. I don't know why prodigals are sometimes the product of godly parents, and I also can't explain how some incredibly good, wholesome, godly kids can come out of some of the most horrible, dysfunctional family situations. You know what it does? It just makes us all that more dependent on God for his grace. Every day. Every day. In 2 Kings 25, the southern kingdom finally falls, Judah. They fall into the hands of the Babylonians. It's 586 B.C. The final king is Zedekiah. He's taken into captivity. Look what it says in 2 Kings 25, verse 7. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. So he had to watch it. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. He, that's a reference to Nebuchadnezzar, he set fire to the temple of the Lord. Remember what God told Solomon? If you disobey me, this whole thing's coming down. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, 
all the houses of Jerusalem, every important building he burned down. Another hard word, the commander of the guard carried into exile the people who remained in the city. It is a horrible scene. It's one of those scenes, if you're one of those being taken into exile, it's one of those scenes that you would, if you lived through it, you would never, ever forget it. It's a scene of total destruction, and the people are taken away into captivity where they will spend 70 years. And after 70 years, as we'll see next week, starting with Zerubbabel and Ezra and then Nehemiah, they're gonna start to make the journey back. But right now, this is Israel at its lowest point. This is as bad as it gets. J. Sidlow Baxter is a great theologian. This is what he writes about 2 Kings. We cannot read 2 Kings without thinking of Solomon's proverb, the way of transgressors is hard. Paul's word, the wages of sin is death, is here demonstrated on a national scale in clearly declared terms of poetic justice for all to see and heed. Sinning, despite warning, brings ruin without remedy. Inexcusable wrong brings inexcusable wrath. Abused privilege incurs increased penalty. penalty. The deeper the guilt, the heavier the stroke. Correction may be resisted, but retribution cannot be evaded. All these thoughts crowd in our mind when we read 2 Kings as we see the battered, broken tribes of Israel and Judah dragged behind the chariots of their heathen conquerors. We surely cannot fail to see the central message of the book. Willful sin brings a willful end. By the way, if you've ever read the book of Lamentation, that's what it's all about. Jeremiah, the prophet who wrote the book of Jeremiah, also wrote the book of Lamentations. And what he's lamenting is the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's as if, as he's writing the book of Lamentation, he's like a war correspondent, and he's walking through the ruins of the city. He's stepping over the rubble, the burning embers, the dead bodies. And you know what he's thinking? It didn't have to be this way. This was my thought as I was working on this book. What if we're the Jeremiah's of our day? I'll give you a secret, I'll let you in on something. People who love to study end time prophecy. You can study it all you want to, you will not find the United States of America in end time prophecy. I'm not saying we're not a nation, but I am saying we're not a power. I'm saying we're not a nation of influence. Which brings up a question. What if we are in our last days as a great nation? Isn't that a horrible thought? Someone has to be a part of that generation. What if we are? Is it possible that in your sphere of influence, you're the Jeremiah? Is it possible that you are the voice that God has placed right now in the lives of your neighbor, your coworker, uh, your family member, maybe a classmate, so through you vo your voice they get to hear the gospel? Hmm. 
I saw one day someone had posted on social media, if you are a Christian and you love your neighbor, you'll wear a mask. There's probably some truth to that. I might say this, if you're a Christian and you love your neighbor, you'll share the gospel. I mean, think about it. What good is it to get through a pandemic, survive a pandemic, if you still have no hope whatsoever in this life and you have no hope for the life to come next? So I wonder, do we have enough love in our hearts not just to wear a mask or maybe distance socially six feet? Do we have enough love in our hearts for our neighbor to actually share the gospel that Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Yeah, you're separated from the Father. Yeah, your life's miserable. Yeah, you're actually destined to go to a place called hell when you die. But Jesus Christ died on the cross to change it all. And if you will accept what he did on the cross to pay for your sins, you can be reconciled back into a relationship and he will empower you to be the person he created you to be, to live the life you desire now. And not only that, when you die, you will spend all eternity in heaven with him. Do you love your neighbor enough to tell him that? See, we're gonna see this in just a few weeks with Esther. Maybe God has put us right where we are for such a time as this. And the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is more important than ever. So I would just ask you, are you living out your purpose? See, I mean, think about it. We have the answer to life now and after we die. But we don't talk about it. We'll go to a good restaurant. We'll say, man, you ought to go to that restaurant. We'll watch a game and say, man, you ought to, you ought to watch that game. That was incredible. You ought to do this, you ought to do that. But we have the answer to life now and after we die, and we often keep it to ourselves. So who are you sharing the gospel with? It's very, very possible that we could be the Jeremiah's of our day. Next week, we're gonna look at Ezra, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And Ezra comes back from Persia, complicated story, but I'll explain it to you with about 50,000 of the exiles. And he reestablishes worship in Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. Oh yeah, this is where the story starts turning up and it's gonna be cool. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are a God of grace. And as Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, your mercies are renewed every morning. It's only by your mercies that we're not just destroyed on the spot because of our sin and our disobedience. But Father, help us even to understand as Christians, consequences are consequences. It's not even necessarily that God is punishing us, just that we make decisions and we have consequences. Father, as we study the book of 2 Kings, it's depressing. It's depressing. And it's even more depressing a little bit because of kind of where we are as a nation. It just seems like everything is unraveling and coming apart at the seams. And that may be exactly your plan. So Father, what a great confidence we have to know that regardless of what goes on around us, as I said last week, we are not given a spirit of fear, but of power and love. 
And if there was ever a time for us to stand boldly and let the light of Jesus Christ shine in our dark, dark world, it is now more than ever. Give us the desire to do that. Just as I had the opportunity just this week to sit down with a guy and talk through the gospel. Help us to understand if we really love people, that conversation will be of primary importance. We're not responsible for how they respond. You've just called us to share that story. And may we do that. And may we bring some light to our time. In your name we pray. Amen.